Well, hello, hello, my ambitious friends, and welcome to 2000 Books, where we bring you the most important actionable ideas from the world's greatest books for ambitious entrepreneurs. And I'm your host and former computer engineer turned entrepreneur, Manny Vaya. So if you want to win in any market, you've got to stop playing the game that your competition is playing. You've got to stop playing their game. Instead, you have to create your own category and you have to go on to dominate that category. Now, it doesn't matter if you're a one-person startup, if you are this one-person online business, or if you're a hundred billion dollar behemoth, the rules of category creation and category domination still apply. You have to create your own category or otherwise you'll be subject to the rules of your uh, rules of your competition. You have to create your own category or otherwise you'll be subject to the rules of the game that your competition is playing and you don't want to be there because you will not be able to win that game so you want to dominate you want to create your category and you want to win in that category now i got to interview i had the privilege of interviewing chris lockhead who is the co-author of this book play bigger which actually defines how you create categories and how you go on to dominate these categories chris lockhead is a marketing legend he actually served as chief marketing officer for multiple publicly traded companies. So this guy is a marketing legend, literally is a legend. And he's probably forgotten more about marketing than I have ever learned about marketing. So make sure to take plenty of notes from this interview. This interview is a gem and I'm sure you will enjoy it. So let me go ahead and press play my interview with the legend of marketing, Chris Lockhead. So well, I, thank you. And you've read a th- over a thousand books, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, like business books or everything. Business and personal development, not fiction. Fiction yeah, okay. as well, but that doesn't count. So, in the area that your podcast is, you've read over a thousand books. Yeah. Wow. You know, one of my uh, favorite expressions of late is, uh, you know, what you put into your brain is what you get out of your life. Uh, and yeah. you've put a lot of awesome. Oh, this is a PG podcast, right? <laughs> um. It is normally, but, uh, you know, if, that's okay. It's okay. If, I, can, I can try to be good. I was about to say the S word, <laughs> but you put a lot yeah. of good stuff into your brain. <laughs> yeah, no, I've, and I enjoy doing this. So, um, as I was saying, like, this is something I'm passionate about. So I would never interview you if I hadn't read the book, if we weren't, if I hadn't even heard the book and it would be no fun for me. So wow. because actually I ended up listening to one of your interviews yesterday as I was preparing for this interview. And I was, it was very obvious to me that the interviewer had not even read the book. So I was kind of like, oh man, this is not, I need to find another interview where the interviewer has read the book. Yeah, most of them, uh, at least from what I can glean, have not actually read the book. Yeah. Um, they don't. And it's just kind of. And I'm like you, when somebody comes on our show, Legends and Losers, I, I read the book. You know, yeah. I, I read the book. And, you know, I'm dyslexic and I read the book. <laughs> you know, and I have well, my. Listen copy. to it. Yeah, well, sometimes I do that too. But, you know, I, 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 um, because I'm visual, I will write in the margins and underscore things. And I, uh, you know, my books all end up looking like this, you know, and have all this stuff in it and stuff. It. It. Yeah. And, you know, I have highlighters falling out of them and yep. stuff because uh, to me, a book's a tool, right? And so I want to go into mm-hmm. it and, and underscoring it and making notes and all that stuff helps with my retention. And so I like oh, to absolutely. dive into it. Yeah, and I actually, um, um, I make mind maps because I'm a very visual learner as well. So every book I read, I'll put my notes together and put them in a mind map so I can see the whole spread 
Yeah. Complete. I can see, I can get perspective that I'd never get when I'm even reading or when I'm listening. I have to do that process for me to be able to see the whole book. Well, and the fun thing about your show where you, it, it's you doing your, um, I don't know if you call it a review or what you call it, because it's, it's way more than a review. And, and that's the thing. It's sort of you. I don't know that I've ever heard anybody do it quite the way you do it, because it seems like you're a reviewer of the book on one hand, but on the other hand, you're an interpreter of the book and you're almost a bit of a motivational speaker yourself. And so, you know, or, or, or whatever, a bit of a guru or what, you know, whatever you want. I don't know. I don't, you know, I mean that in a, in a very laudatory way. Thank and you. so, and so you, you fuse these three things together and, you know, I might say you're a new category because you're at one, you know, telling me about the book. I was, I was most recently listening to your Michael Phelps one. I was like, yeah, what others can't or won't. And I was like, that's awesome. And, you know, <laughs> and, and, and stuff like that. Um, but then you stop and you're now and you're, and you're sort of uh, recounting of what's in the book. And then you sort of do some interpretation and then you do like a little motivation. What are you doing in your life to, uh, you know, can't or won't and stuff. And so it's this, yeah, you're a new category of, 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 I don't even know what to call you because you're not a book reviewer, a book experience sharer. I don't know who you are. Yeah, no. And so the problem, and, and, and I feel like we're already talking about uh, what we wanted to talk about here. No, but that's category design. Yeah. The cool thing when I, when I listened to your show, I was like, okay, I don't, at some point, this guy is clearly, I mean, far from dumb. At some point when he reads Play Bigger, it's got to occur to him that he is an intuitive category designer because that's what he's doing. It's you're a whole new genre of uh, show. That's awesome. I, I love it. And uh, the reason, like, as, as I was reading the book, it was, it was like, wow, you guys had conceptualized the things that I don't think, well, maybe um, these were topics of conversation, maybe in some bits and pieces, but you put it all together, especially the part where you said, you know, you are solving a problem that someone else might, or you're solving a problem that you've seen and it's not been solved yet. So for me, a book review never did it because it was so lame uh, or even a book summary, the way it existed, it's so lame because it's almost like, Someone just hired a college uh, grad to write an English interpretation of the ideas without really giving it perspective, without really building the whole picture behind it. So, so, so wait a minute. I just, I just love, uh, you know, because uh, I've spent 30 years, per, you know, working on category design, right? And so I love meeting intuitive category designers. And so let me see if I can unpack this a little bit with you, Manny. So obviously you're a guy who loves to read, I mean, and loves knowledge and all, I mean, clearly, right? So, but you still, even though you've read over a thousand books, you have to have some way of figuring out, do I or don't I want to invest in this one, right? Mm -hmm. So therefore I got to believe you're, as, as my friend Eddie Yoon, who, by the way, you should have on his book, uh, Super Consumers, this is the one with all my notes on it, awesome. is on fire. And I'd be happy to introduce you. He's an incredible, incredible guy. I'd love and, to. Because you, you became a super consumer, in his words, of not just books, but book reviews of one sort or another so that you could discern or decide, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then you had what every uh, innovator, entrepreneur, and if they are successful, category designer has, which is you have this aha where you find these reviews wanting 
And to quote the big Lebowski, you say, this aggression will not stand, man. If there's no <laughs> book reviews that turn me on and are giving me what I want, then I'm going to have to do it. Yes, exactly. Is that what happened? That's exactly what happened. There was no passion in those things. There was no excitement in those things. There was no story behind those things. It was, they were just plain vanilla freaking reviews by some random dude who had no business doing a review of a book like this. Well, and the thing is, like, you're telling me about the Phelps book and, and you're like a kid. You're like a kid. To, and I mean that in a, you know, like a kid on Christmas kind of a kid, you know, that you have that enthusiasm, like you're telling me how awesome this book is and why and like the things you're really getting out of it and why I should be getting these things out. I was like, wow, this is, and I thought, I don't even know what this dude, this dude is not, this guy is a whole new category. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate, uh, <laughs> I, I, th- this is, yeah, this is, this is fun and yeah. that's why I do it. Yeah, clear, clearly. Yeah. Uh, it's awesome. It's really awesome. And uh, yeah. no surprise you're attracting a big following. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, I, I'm, I'm actually, uh, excited to jump, jump into the ideas of the book and oh, I have book. a bunch of other people I want to introduce you to, to as well. I want to introduce you to my friends at 800 CEO read, Do you know them? Oh, well, I, I know of the, I know of 800 CEO read. I don't know those people, but I'd like to understand, like, I, yeah, I know them. I know the business for sure. Yeah. So they are a fascinating company and it actually goes to the book Play Bigger, which is if I said to you, you could build a category king in the online book business, most people would say, that's not freaking possible because Amazon is you know, one of the greatest category kings of all time. Mm-hmm. Well, 800 CEO read is a category king. The category is obviously a very small focused one, but it is in business books and they have gotten to where they've gotten because they are, they view themselves as a platform for community between authors and readers. And they specialize in, um, uh, you know, bulk buys, Mm-hmm. And, and working with authors to get their books promoted and have deep relationships with followers and all this great stuff. And so here they are, they're an online bookseller, but because they focused on a, on a, a category uh, position mm-hmm. that is very niche oriented and one that requires a unique uh, set of insights around a unique set of capa- uh, capabilities, they've been hugely successful. So A, they're interesting from that perspective and B, given what you do, you guys need to know each other because you're talking about a lot of the books that they're selling. And I don't know, there's gotta be some, something for you guys to do. I don't know what it Absolutely. is. I would love to talk to them. So they're uh, great people. Yeah. I would love to talk to them. I would love to collaborate or do whatever uh, necessary to. I, and I gotta believe they get a big kick out of you <laughs> doing something very unique. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, so, so let's, I mean, you, you've, you talked about two different kinds of category builders here. There's 1-800-CO-READ. There's something I'm doing, which is very different from the kinds of businesses you deal with. You're talking about billion-dollar businesses, multi-billion-dollar businesses. You're talking about hundred-billion-dollar enterprises. And they're building categories in a, in a rather different way, maybe. Or, or, and that was, that was the thing that was going on in my mind as I was reading the book, as when does this really, when does this discussion start when you're, when you're starting a business, when you're creating a business and um, Steve Jobs or whoever to be take as an example, um, you know, Steve Jobs later on, as you said, when he was developing the iPad or when he was promoting the iPad, he was clear that this is a category, but initially in the early phases of the business, he was just hustling 
to make things work, right? So how, when do we start to become aware or I guess once you become aware, that's it. Now you have to think about it. Now you become, now this becomes a part of your thinking process, but is there a time when you say, okay, now I should focus on building a category? So uh, the answer is from the start. Mm -hmm. That's the short answer. Yeah. Uh, And I'm going to say something that's going to sound immodest, but I'll say it anyway. There are top tier venture capitalists in Silicon Valley today who, when an entrepreneur uh, reaches out to them and says, I want to come in and meet with you. And, you know, assuming the, the venture capitalist is interested, those VCs say, yeah, let's, we'll meet on next Thursday or whatever it is. Um, but you need to read play bigger before you come in and you need to have some answers to some of the questions uh, about how you're going to design and dominate a category. And if you're not going to do that, don't come in and see us. And there are three questions that they must answer, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about those three questions because they are fundamental. Like as I was thinking about those questions, I don't think I had all the answers right away, but they caused me to think deeper, bigger, um, more about this idea. Yeah. First question. Well, and these are what you call Dave's three questions, right? Dave's three questions. Yeah. So he's one of the four uh, co-authors and one of the three co-founders of the company. Uh, so there's a book play bigger, obviously, and there's a company called play bigger advisors that, uh, Dave, Al and I co-founded. And, uh, I actually, I don't, I don't know if you realize Manny, I retired last year shortly after the book came out mm-hmm. and, uh, Dave and Al bless them. They, they continue forward. Um, and I'm doing some other things we can talk about if you, if you like, and you know, I'm still deeply connected to those guys as, as, as you might expect. But, uh, anyway, so yeah, Dave's three questions. Um, number one, what problem do you solve? Mm-hmm. And can you kind of, you know, explain that to me very clearly and very simply, right? Uh, number two, uh, if you solve that problem perfectly, what category are you in? What's it called? What is this? And number three, if you become the category king and you take uh, 76% of the economics, which is on average what the category king gets, and we can talk to you about, you know, we can talk about that if you like, um, how valuable will your company be? What will your company be worth? So okay. one, what problem do you solve? Two, if you solve it perfectly, what category are you in? And three, if you become the category king and take two thirds of the economics in that space, how, how valuable do you think you'll be? Hmm. And so when, when you're starting off, uh, you may have the answers, but also likely that you may have the wrong answers for a while. Uh, this is a journey in some ways, right? This is a discovery process. This will, you may not have the right answers right off the bat, but it will evolve, right? It, it will absolutely evolve. Um, you know, there's some instances where companies lock and load and it goes boom and it just, it goes, right? And so the definition of the category or the category name remains as such for some meaningful period of time. But then there are a lot of others uh, that evolve to your point. So for, for example, um, uh, today, these things we call each other on, we call smartphones. Mm-hmm. Well, when they first came out, most people called them wireless phones. And for a while, they were mobile phones. And interestingly enough, of course, if you think about an Android or an iPhone today, phone is not really, doesn't do them justice because it's a mainframe computer in your hand and then some, right? And so, 
it could very well be that in five to 10 years from now, the word phone won't be in the category name of these things today we call smartphones. And so, so you're absolutely right. As uh, technology changes, as, as, as our desires and needs and wants as people, you know, c- consumer habits change. Uh, but most importantly, as the thinking about problems change, categories can either evolve and in many cases they get redesigned. So as the thinking of the problem evolves in some ways, now let's, let's, let's maybe make it a little clearer for our listeners because uh, one of the fundamental ideas behind this whole, whole idea of building a category is understanding that we have to focus on the problem. Like we have to own the problem as the category rather than the solution as the category to start off, right? Yeah, and one of my favorite expressions, Randy, about that is there's there's too many solutions looking for a problem, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so uh, entrepreneurs, innovators of any kind, they they fall in love with the solution, with the product, and we get we get trained in the business world, we get trained in universities, we get trained in you know I don't want to underscore a certain place or whatever, but in in case studies that we read that the best product wins and that if you have a legendary product and you can build a legendary company to deliver that product and service that product and, and so forth, you win. Yeah. And th- while that's possible, it's highly unlikely because almost you can almost guarantee that the world is not going to see the solution the way the innovator, entrepreneur, inventor does. Listen, my mother thinks I am the best looking man on planet earth. Okay. But you are man. Yeah. (laughs) And I I have a face for radio. (laughs) Right. And so, so nobody sees that, you know, the product or the innovation, the way the inventor or entrepreneur does. Right. And so if you take a step back, what, what, Uh, category design really is, is the most, when you study the legendary innovators over time, here's the big aha. And, you know, the three of us had spent plus or minus 30 years on this individually in the last decade together, plus or minus on it together. And there's over half a million dollars of primary research, data science research in the book. Um, And so here's the aha when you study the legends. Yes, they build a legendary product. And please don't take anything I'm saying as, as that you should not do that. You should. Legendary products are really important and more important probably today than ever. Yes, you build a legendary company and, and hopefully an innovative business model. We've seen a lot of great innovations in the last decade or so in, in business model innovation that's, that's making a big difference both to companies and consumers. But here's the interesting. So you get two levers, product and company. The legends pull this third lever called category. That is to say, Mm -hmm. they teach the world how to think about a problem and therefore a solution in the way they want the world to. And so, for example, you mentioned Jobs. When he launches the iPad, he stands up on stage, he puts up a slide that's got the iPhone on one end and the iMac on the other. And he says, we believe there's room for a third category of device. Now, let me tell you why. 
And he begins to have a conversation that you could think of as a point of view where he, he underscores the shortcomings in both uh, devices, phone and laptop, particularly around content consumption and communication in this new emerging at the time. It was 2009, if my memory's right, uh, a digital social mobile world, right? And we all agree with him. And instead of buying two products from him, we now buy three. <laughs> And, and that's what legendary category designers do. They open up our thinking to consider a problem in the way that they want us to. And so another way to think about it, Manny, is that um, everything we believe we're conditioned to believe. And so, so the legends condition us to think about problems and solutions in the way that we, they want us to. And as a result, they get positioned as the leader in a whole new space because once the world sees a problem, they can't unsee it. And so if you want to start building what we call the category design lens, start paying attention to uh, the context of things and what stuff's called. So for example, one of the greatest category uh, names of all time, what's an aspirin called? Painkiller. Painkiller. That is a legendary category name, right? Right? Because, wow, I have pain and I want, I don't want to get, they didn't call it a pain get ridder. They didn't call Mm. it a pain smoother. They didn't Mm. call it an ache easer. I mean, I know these all sound ridiculous and I'm being a little bit ridiculous Mm. on purpose, but the point is they could have called it a lot of other stuff. They were smart enough at Bear to call it a painkiller. Yeah. Right. And yet these these pills that we take to make ourselves better over the long term for our long term benefit, those are called vitamins. Vitamins. That's right. And there's no direct correlation between my life and vitamins, really. So, like, I don't know. We I guess Mm -hmm. my point is uh, I hear a lot of CEOs say we got to figure out how we're much more of a painkiller than a vitamin. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as you said, I mean, once the world sees the problem, it's very hard to unsee it. And it is our job as an entrepreneur to evangelize that problem, to, to actually take it to the world and tell them that, hey, there is this problem here. You may not have known but let me talk to you about it. And Mark Benioff did it for a long time with Salesforce. Um, he's still doing it. He's still doing it because it's true. Like what he's evangelizing is a real problem. And he's, he's made a ginormous business out of a problem that initially people didn't even know it existed. Correct. And actually I would even take it a step further. Uh, the way he proposed the or the new computing paradigm at the time was completely absurd. So if you take, if you, uh, you know, step on a time transport machine, we're back in 1998, 1997 in the uh, very early days and the early founding of of Salesforce. Um, At the time, even small businesses, they had their own applications that they ran on their own computers inside their own businesses, whether you were Citibank or whether you were, you know, Manny and Chris's donut shop. That's what you did, right? You had your own computer, your own software, your own data, your own network, et cetera. 
So that's 1997. So Mark Benioff shows up and says, hey, um, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to this website and enter in all your customer's name, all, the, all your customer information. And then I want you to put your forecast data for each of those customers into this website that is run on in my house, on my servers, and on my uh, disk drives, okay? Mm-hmm. And, oh, by the way, um, you're also, you don't get to buy my software because that was a paradigm at the time. You're going to just rent it. You're going to pay me a monthly fee per user. And so think about this for a second. The chief information officer of a Fortune 500 company in 1997 says, you want me to give you all my customer data, all my forecast data, all the the names, addresses, phone numbers of all my salespeople, all my sales management, and you're going to run it on your stuff, and I don't even ever get to see it? Go F yourself. (laughs) And that is what the world, most of the world said. Mm Mm-hmm. But Mark was a very smart category designer. And so uh, he, he didn't say what I just said. What he said was no software. And he did what legendary category designers do. They evangelize a problem. And so he started to talk about how expensive it was to have in-house software. And really importantly, Manny, not only did he do category design on what he was up to by calling it cloud computing, ultimately, it's not what it was in the beginning to the point we, we talked about earlier. It was called software as a service or SaaS for short. Um, and it evolved into, into being called the cloud. Um, it, but that said, he, he didn't say any of the stuff I said. He said, why would you want software in-house? And he invented a term for that. See, SAP was not running around saying they sell on-premise software. Mm -hmm. So Benioff was really smart. He created the term on-premise, and it was a descriptive term, so it wasn't a derogatory term. That could get written in the Wall Street Journal. That's not, you know, most marketers make the mistake when they're having a dialogue with their market to just rail on the competition. He didn't do that. He said, well, they are on-premise. We're Mm -hmm. in the cloud. And then he, over time, made on-premise equal, you know, uh, <laughs> I was going to say something totally inappropriate, but equal bad. <laughs> Let's just call it that, right? <laughs> uh, and so the more he imbued, and, and he would say, well, you don't want on-premise software, do you? Well, you know, that's like having genital disease. <laughs> right. And so I, I try cleaned it up in my head. It took me a second. Um, and, and, and so, and so that was also very powerful. So what he did was he, he, uh, he continuously made this, uh, we, what we talk about in the book, uh, these from two arguments with the market. He said, well, the way it is, is, is this way today. Can't you see the problem with that? Don't you think it should be this way? And the more he got people to see, you know what? It is expensive to run software in-house. And once I upgrade it or once I change it, I can't upgrade it. And why, why, why do I want to be in the business of running data centers? I'm a, I'm a bank or I'm a distribution company or I'm a manufacturer or I'm a whatever I am and so forth. And so over a period of 15 years, the world starts to agree. And by year six, seven, eight, there's a tipping point that happens and then the rest of it just plays out. And, and now today, 
cloud. There's nobody. If, if you and I showed up on Sand Hill Road to the top venture capitalists in the world and in the tech industry and tried to say, we want to start a on-premise application enterprise software company, they tell us to, you know, get the F out. <laughs> yeah. Are you running a business with annual revenues in excess of $1 million? If so, are you interested in discussing the greatest business and personal development books with other like-minded entrepreneurs who are also running million-dollar-plus businesses? If you answered yes, I invite you to apply to my million-dollar book club by going to milliondollarbookclub.com. You see, the Million Dollar Book Club is a private book club and mastermind group where you get to discuss the greatest books and ideas with other like-minded entrepreneurs who are generating at least $1 million annually. So if you're interested in the book club, I invite you to apply for it at milliondollarbookclub.com. So he, what team, what Benioff did, and what, as you say, legendary category designers did, and they are continuing to do, is they're changing, they're fundamentally changing the way people think. Not about the solution, but first about the problem. The solution just comes along for the ride. And that's a very profound change of thinking that entrepreneurs need to have because uh, as entrepreneurs, and by the way, I used to be an engineer. Uh, I'm a physicist. I'm an engineer. So my fundamental tendency is to build stuff. My fundamental tendency is to make solutions, not to go evangelize problems. Like that doesn't, that's not who, that's not the way I see the world. And, uh, but this is a huge shift in the way, in the way I have to think about what I do. And not only that, but also the way as entrepreneurs, we have to think about um, how we approach the world, how we approach telling the story. Yes. And and, and that story. Yeah, that that story matters a lot um, because the story is what frames people's thinking about the problem and the solution and problems create categories. And if everybody says, well, don't I have to be the first mover? Don't I want first mover advantage or 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 should I be the second mover of that whole discussion? And it's the first to get all three right. We call it prosecute the magic triangle, Pro, a company, product and category. Mm. Right. My good buddy, uh, Paul Martino, was a co-founder of a um, early social network called Tribe. Mm. And he was on he was on an episode of Legends and Losers recently. So the story's fresh in my mind. And he he uh, they were two years ahead of Facebook. Wow. And um, so they had they had. Uh, you know, the, t- the huge time to market advantage, but uh, Zuckerberg got all three right product company and category and um, uh, you know, tribe just didn't get it right. And it still exists today in a very small niche. I, I think he said their <laughs> um, um, uh, um, burners, you know, the people who go to burning man, oh, I think that's... there's, there's like a burner community on tribe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's a small, that's a, that's a niche. <laughs> well, that's what happens when the category King emerges and takes all the economics, right? You either go out of business or you find, you know, you say, okay, we're going to be the social network for burners. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's exactly the, the thing. I mean, uh, the, the fact that category Kings will dominate the economics of any, any category in that way. And I think Peter Thiel kind of 
initiated that discussion when he was talking about zero to one in the sense he said, I want you to be a monopoly. But I mean, what you guys are saying is this is how you become a monopoly in some ways because you become the category king. And when you are the category king, you almost become monopolistic in, in what you do. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the industry and the category. It's a little bit different, but it, it, sure. If you said, is, does Microsoft have a monopoly in office productivity software, you know, office, uh, word, et cetera? The answer to that question is yes. And they've, they've had that monopoly for the better part of 30 years. It's, it's an extraordinary feat of, um, uh, of category design and entrepreneurship and innovation. Um, and so I, in my opinion, they, they, they deserve it. If you, if you achieve that, if you achieve a Google like position, a Facebook like position, or listen, if you are the category King, you know, I have a good friend who retired at 40 from uh, a career in real estate. And uh, he was at uh, century 21. He was the number one century 21 uh, sales rep on the West coast and uh, he dominated um, California and in his neighborhood, he was the category king. I mean, you don't mm. have those kinds of numbers unless you're not. And his name's Tim Road. And he, he rewired, or if you will, redesign the category of realtor in Manteca, California. I can explain why if you care, but, but my, my point is um, the category king principles apply from Google and Microsoft to Tim Road and, and in between. Yeah, and I would love to explore the different, I mean, we've been talking about one end of the spectrum, the multi-billion dollar giants, but let's talk about the other end of the spectrum where people are building a personal brand-based business or maybe more lifestyle-based businesses or something along those lines where um, just like your friend Tim Rhodes, um, it's, it's, he's building a category. He's, he's, and uh, I think you guys talk about he's, it's positioning himself. Yeah. I mean, one of the mantras in the book you, you might remember is uh, yeah. position yourself or be positioned, right? Mm -hmm. And that is to say, if we don't tell the world how we want them to think about, in this case, um, a problem and a solution, or, or just make it even simpler, our business or ourselves for that matter, then they're going to make stuff up. Mm-hmm. And you might like what they make up and you might not like it. You know, Muhammad Ali famously said, if I don't tell them I'm the greatest, how are they going to know? <laughs> I did not know that he said that. <laughs> right. And so, yeah. And so <laughs> ultimately that's what it's about. In the case of Tim, uh, he wasn't doing an innovation that was at the level of a Google. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a breakthrough technology and certainly it wasn't going to scale to to make a difference to uh, literally billions of people over time and be one of the most valuable companies in the world. That wasn't the game he was playing, but inside the game he was playing uh, called being a local realtor, he played bigger, haha, -ha, by redesigning the category. And this is how he did it. The axiom at the time in the real estate business was if you want to be a successful realtor, you kind of got to cuddle up to the community. And you sort of got to do everything possible to get known in the community and join the this club and the that club and blah, 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 and sit on this thing and, you know, all that stuff. And then the other thing that you got to do is you got to sort of go door to door and you got to say, hey, uh, Manny, my name's Christopher and I'm a realtor in the neighborhood and I'm a member of this club and that club and maybe I go to this church or whatever it is. And um, 
I know you may not be thinking about selling your house, but I just wanted you to know I'd be happy to do a free evaluation for you anytime, give you a sense of the market, you know, all this stuff. So there was all these things that you did to uh, do sort of a, an appraisal and, and do all these things to kind of cuddle up to people so that in the event that one day, uh, a year from now or whatever, man, when Manny's thinking about selling his house, he's going to call Christopher. And those types of tactics. Well, Tim said, F all that. Hmm. He said, I only want to deal with people who are serious about selling their house. And he went a huge step further. I am going to rewrite the criteria in my market for how you select a realtor. Hmm. And so his point of view, which became his tagline was, call Tim Road and start packing. (laughs) And he, he would do a lot of advertising, television advertising and so forth. And he would say, when, essentially, when you're ready to sell your house, call Tim Road and start packing. And the thing that he wasn't saying that was speaking even louder than what he was saying was, if you're not serious, go F yourself. You're not, don't call me. Call me when you're serious about selling your house. And so a lot of his clients became like people who've been with two and three agents and it hadn't worked. And, and then he would do all this zany marketing. Like, um, you know, he would, he would stand on a, on the top of a bridge with a bungee cord around his leg, standing there in a suit and briefcase and jump off the bridge and, and scream, you know, call Tim Road and start packing and, you know, all this crazy stuff that he would do. But my point is he was a category designer in that he reframed the problem. And he said he positioned himself around if you want to sell your house fast, I'm your guy. Mm. And he became number one in the nation. Yeah. And so, you know, he's not doing the innovation that Google is when they make people rethink about what advertising means. <laughs> but the principles of category design remain the same, which is a legendary uh, innovator conditions a market to think about a problem and a solution in the way she wants them to. And once they do that, ba-boom. Right on. And I, I think one of the things, uh, as, as you were talking about it, he was conditioning the market to think, or he himself said himself so that he was different rather than better. He was not running their race. He was running his own race. Yes. Or he was designing his own race to run and win. Yeah, very good. This, this is a huge trap that, um, that entrepreneurs and innovators of all sorts, many fall into, which is in our mind, because we're competitors, we want to show the world we're better, like, you know, like boxers, right? You and I go in, we're going to box each other. We want to show the world who's the better boxer and you're going to try and knock me out and I'm going to try and knock you out. And one of us is going to do that. And, and at the end of it, they're going to say, well, Manny was the better fighter, right? Uh, and, and in the interview, I'll sit there and say, well, certainly tonight, Manny was the better man. You know? <laughs> and, and so this b- better sort of idea gets baked into our head. And our school system is built on that. Who had the best grades? Mm-hmm. So from the beginning of our lives, we're evaluated in the context of who's better than who. What nobody yeah. thinks about is better than who at what? Yeah, we're conditioned by society to almost not be different. We're conditioned by society to not stand out. Exactly. And, and we're also conditioned, even more so, that the way to be successful is to be better than everyone else. Mm-hmm. 
So if I want to get picked first for the play, I want to be the best actor. If I want to be the you know president of the math club, I have to be the best math student. Uh, if I want to be the uh, starting pitcher on the baseball team, et cetera, right? I have to beat other people at this game. And so here's what happens. When people go into business, they play the game that's there mm-hmm. and they fall into a unconscious decision to do the same thing. Well, here's what you find, Manny. When you spend years analyzing, studying the greatest innovators, entrepreneurs of our time, what you realize is that's not what they did. As a matter of fact, they went out of their way to make sure the world would not compare them to what came before. Hmm. And here's my evidence of that. Picasso. He starts off his career, and I'm not a, a painting expert, but I'm a category design expert, okay? He starts off his career, he's a very talented painter, but he's just painting landscapes and whatever he's painting. And it's not till he starts hacking the painting up into these, what he calls cubes, and rearranging everything so he takes the boob and sticks it where the ear should be, and et cetera, et cetera, right? Well, when he first shows that to people, what do you think their reaction is? Probably they are not. Yeah, it's, 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 this is the work of a four-year-old mental patient, (laughs) right? right? Uh And, and he says, well, see, that's where you're wrong. You can't compare me to what came before because there was Renaissance art and there was this art and there was that art. He says, this is cubism. Hmm. And, it's a whole new category of art and you can't look at it the same way that you look at a, a uh, realistic painting of a fruit bowl. So here's my point for Picasso to become Picasso, Manny, he's got to change the world's definition of art. Mm. And once that happens, He's the category king of cubism and arguably the most famous painter of our time, certainly one of the top three to five. But And how many other cubist painters can you name? I don't know. None. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And that's what Bob Marley does with reggae music. And that's what the Ramones do with punk rock. And, you know, that's ultimately what Elvis does with rock and roll, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they talk about these new genres of music. You know, that's what the early uh, crossover popular uh, artists in hip hop, you know, Run DMC and th- those early bands that sort of sort of came out of the, uh, the cult scene and then went broke across. Right. Et cetera, et cetera. And so this happens in all facets of, of life. But in businesses, you start to look what you discover is if you really believe you've got something that's innovative, that's powerful, that's really valuable, wouldn't you want to, wouldn't you want to define for the world how they should look at it? Why would you want to be compared to what came before? Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, if you look at, you know, we talked about smartphones and jobs, right? That category was well on its way. Steve Jobs reimagined the category. And mm-hmm. I w- and everybody today says, oh, well, the iPhone was just a better product than the BlackBerry. Mm-hmm. Well, really? 
Here's what I would argue to you. First of all, I was a dedicated BlackBerry user, and the primary use case for the BlackBerry was email. Mm -hmm. And I guarantee you, if you tried a BlackBerry for email for a week, there's no way you'd want your iPhone. I have big hands. The tactile keyboard on that thing was awesome. And I would say my big ass thumbs, I hit the wrong letter probably every six or eight times. I never did that with my BlackBerry, right? The product was awesome. Mm -hmm. And it could very well have been that the common thinking for decades would have been that you would have had to have a tactile keyboard like that because I could build an argument. I could keep going as to why that is a better technology, a better solution, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Now, am I right? Well, right is a subject in this type of thing of interpretation. And so what Jobs did was rewrite the rules for what a, at that time, mobile phone was. He reimagined the category in the context of a whole different set of problems and solutions. He reimagined it again in a world of apps that, that RIM never could, the makers of BlackBerry, right? And we all accepted Steve's framing of the problem and therefore his solution. And the BlackBerry guys went, hey, where did the market go, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But make no mistake, Steve Jobs did not compete with the BlackBerry. Mm. Henry Ford did not compete with the horse and buggy. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's like, as, as, as we're, as we're talking about it and as I'm looking at it from the bigger picture, the history, history of humanity is history of people who have designed categories in some ways, whether you talk about musicians, you talk about uh, leaders, you talk about, especially in music, it's so obvious. Every great legendary musician created a category of music. Whether we talk about Pink Floyd, whether we talk about uh, the Beatles, whether we talk about the Rolling uh, Stones, the, the Rolling Stones, the Ramones, and, whoever and, you want to talk about that, the, the number one is, bands that pop to mind. You're absolutely right. And there's great rock bands yeah. that we love that we all love. But the ones that we go, yeah, yeah, they're the category kings. You know, behind me, I have a picture of Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Well, was he the greatest boxer ever? Most people who know boxing say he was not. Hmm. But he was a category king. He was the first athlete to ever stand up for a social cause. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, he became bigger than the sport. Yeah. Right? And he created a whole new category. You know, at that level, he took a whole new ground. Certainly never for a fighter, Mm -hmm. you know. and so that's why he's, he's, he's beloved the way he's beloved. And, and of course he was a great character and all that, but, but part of it for sure, it's hard to say how much he breaks through as a whole new category of athlete and he becomes a hero at a whole other level. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. This is, this is so much fun. This is so much fun because we're, we're talking about all these different paradigms, different, uh, different walks of life in some ways and different kinds of businesses, different kinds of people, different kinds of things that they do. And uh, this is a common theme across the board where everyone who's winning 
the game of life is actually creating the game before they start to go and win the game. And that's where they're designing the categories to do that. And I think that's, that's the inspiration for all of us who are listening as entrepreneurs. We've got to think very strongly about what category we're building rather than if we're just trying to do something better. Is that Yes. And I would go uh, alongside that, Manny, and say that we all got trained in a way of thinking about business that's 180 degrees wrong on this, which is uh, we think that products and or brands make categories and or companies. And here's the truth. Categories make brands and companies and products, not the other way around. And entrepreneurs intuitively understand this. And I'll tell you why I'm not crazy. Um, in, I live in Santa Cruz, California. And uh, it's a beautiful uh, California beach town. I'm beyond out of my mind with happiness to live here. But anyway, that said, um, what's popular, as you well know, living on the West Coast here, is this new category of beer that is commonly referred to as craft beer. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, there's so many of these places popping up in Santa Cruz. I almost, I'm beginning to think it might be a law that there needs to be one every so, so many half mile or whatever. I don't know what. <laughs> and anyway, uh, one opened up a few months ago, just in my neighborhood. And um, when they opened up, they put a sign out. They're in a little mall, one of the sort of the classic California style, little uh, single level malls. And uh, they put up a sign at the front entrance of the little mall. And the sign didn't say Manny and Chris's beer pub. It said craft beer. Mm. And so the two dudes and I guarantee it was two dudes. I don't know, but I'm willing to bet mm-hmm. um, uh, who opened that place somehow intuitively understood that they needed to put category before brand. Mm. And the reason they understood that is if people don't know what you are, they don't care about who you are. Mm. And the, what you are is the category. Here's another way to think about the importance of uh, categories make brands and companies, not the other way around. Xerox had and has a legendary brand. Mm-hmm. No one gives an F because the category doesn't matter anymore. The categories died. Well, it's a mature category. It's on its way down and end of discussion. Here's one recently. This one drove me nuts. This drives me nuts every time it happens. So uh, recently, Tesla surpassed General Motors as the most valuable automobile company on uh, in America. Mm-hmm. Okay. And on the news, everybody goes, oh, what's going on? this is crazy. People have lost their mind. How can this company that sells, you know, 25 cars a year be more valuable than General Motors? And they don't have this and they don't have that. And GM has all this and GM has all these brands and all that. This is crazy. People have lost their mind. And they don't understand. Categories make brands. Yeah. Tesla is the category king in a giant new category that they're designing called the electric car. And 
what drives market cap or value of companies is three things. Number one, investors' perception of the size and the growth rate of the category. Is this going to be a big market or is this a big and growing market? Number two, investors' perception of your category kingness. That is to say, they know that one company takes two-thirds of the economics. Mm. Savvy investors understand this. They want to bet on that company as early as possible, as early as is wise. And number three, their interpretation of your metrics, not necessarily just your financials, but there's a lot of metrics that matter in valuing companies that have nothing to do with revenue, expenses, EBITDA, and margins. So, number one, size and growth rate of the company. Number two, investors' perception of your category kingness. Mm -hmm. And number three, investors' perception of your metrics in the context of the first two things. Right. So, said simply, investors look at Tesla and they go, well, they are leading the way in a whole new area. We believe over time, uh, Elon and co have convinced us that over time, there's a very real chance that the electric car overtakes the combustion car. Mm -hmm. And if that were to happen and they're the category king, this company's probably massively undervalued when you value it more than General Motors. That's the thinking. You can call that crazy. You can call it what you want, but those are the three things that drive the value of, uh, or in this case, market caps of companies. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think we can look back at history and we can see this again and again. Uh, Ford did it and Walmart did it and Amazon did it and uh, Southwest did it in their own ways, in their own specific categories that they built out of uh, out of the category of building a car company or building a retailer or building an airline company. They all stood the test of time by building the categories rather than building... Um, a specific product, but then some of them lost their way as well. Well, category violence happens. And so the, I get asked a lot, Manny, um, how, 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 how long do categories live and how can I tell if they're in trouble and, and, and so forth? And it's a great question. And the only way I know how to think about the answer is categories live as long as uh, people's interpretation of a problem lives. Hmm. So I'll give you a, I'll give you a, an example in the tech industry for the last 15 or yeah, maybe even more years, many companies have tried to replace email with something. And there's a lot of complaints about email and email persists, Right. Uh, email is, is a thriving application and everybody will wonders why. And the answer to that question is, well, nobody has come up with a better solution to the way we currently think about the problem. Mm -hmm. People have come up with solutions, many of which you could argue are better but they're solving the same thing, which is how do we have this asynchronous communication and share files? And as long as people think about that, that's an important way to think about uh, a communication problem, email is going to exist. Mm -hmm. And until somebody reimagines the problem and reconditions us or conditions us to think about digital communication in a different way, email will continue. 
Wow. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. I was just uh, thinking about all the different category things are always thinking about. They're, they're creating, it's always about the problem. We start with the problem, we end with the problem in the sense that's, that's, that's where we have to focus our energies on, on Evangela, on thinking about the new problem. And once we think about the new problem, then evangelizing the problem rather than just thinking about the solution all the time. Yeah, you, you said a magic word there, which is evangelize. We, we believe the E in CEO stands for evangelist. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Well, and if you think about it, you know, a, great, a great example that I love is Sarah Blakely, the, the entrepreneur, innovator, and category designer of Spanx. And here's the genius. First of all, it's a great product. I, I, I don't know how, I don't know if you live with a, a lady or several, but uh, uh, I do, and we have Spanx in the house. <laughs> <laughs> and and here's the fascinating thing. So she, you know, the problem, as she says, is she didn't like the way she looked in a pair of white jeans. She wants something that would sort of smooth some stuff out, right? So this is what it says. She says it right on her website. So I'm not saying anything out of school here. Um, and um, so she goes to work. And she comes up with what turns out is a real innovation that today, you know, uh, tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands of women love. But here's the genius. Yes, she gets the product right. She mm-hmm. gets a great brand name, right? Her packaging is, is great. And ultimately, she gets a great distribution strategy. And all, yes, absolutely. Product and company, A+. Here's what she does on category. She doesn't call it a girdle 2.0. Hmm. She doesn't even call it underwear. She calls it shapewear. Oh, okay. And so if you say that the undergarment category starts when Adam puts the fig leaf over his junk, this category has been around for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) And so for her to be able to convince the world that they should look at and value her product differently. She gets them to think about the problem differently. And uh, the other awesome thing about her, she self-funds the whole company. She owns the company by herself. There's no venture capital. There's none of that stuff. She's a billionaire and she's this amazing entrepreneurial success story of, of an entrepreneur who like a lot of great entrepreneurs before her essentially starts in the garage and here she is. But she was savvy enough to understand I need to, teach people to think about this in a different way. Cause if they think about it like a corset or a girdle, there's a lot of negative impl- uh, uh, connotations. I don't want to be associated with that. I want to be associated with fun and evening gowns and looking great and et cetera. And so that's why she, she intuitively understands she needs to distinguish herself. She needs to be different and therefore not compared to what came before. And uh, she's made, you know, hundreds of thousands of women happy and she's a billionaire. Oh yeah, millions of women probably. Um, and so, so I want to I want to make this discussion um, um, more personal for me now because what I'm doing and the and the things that we're doing. One of the things I I am as an engineer, this is something that uh, I'm trying to understand. How do I evangelize this problem? How do I evangelize what we're doing? Because for me, the the biggest problem with reading a book is that. It's stuck there. Like all the ideas are in there. Maybe they're highlighted and stuff, but they're never visualized. They're never visible. And they're never, um, it's, you cannot perceive those ideas clearly. You don't have a level of perception or here's the problem. Maybe I'm not even able to explain the problem clearly to you right now as we're talking. So what is the process of 
creating this uh, or explaining the problem clearly so that people understand and then going about evangelizing it because it feels like a challenge to me already as I'm talking to you. It is. Make no mistake. Um, if it was easy, everyone would do it. And um, the people who have done it have done it intuitively. Um, um, I, I, I recently spent um, some time with a, a well-known venture capitalist here in Silicon Valley named Bruce Cleveland. And Bruce was one of the very early employees at Oracle. And he was one of the co-founders of a company called Siebel Systems that mm-hmm. uh, for quite some time was the category king in, in um, customer relationship management software. And of course, Oracle persists to this day. And he was sharing with me how um, he enjoyed the book because it unpacked what entrepreneurs and innovators like Larry Ellison and Tom Siebel were doing intuitively with the market. And he said, we all sort of understood that this was our strategy, but it wasn't sort of declared as such. And it wasn't as sort of on the table as such. It was more in the air. Right. And it was like the great, they they understood that they needed to like, he was talking about Larry Ellison and how there at the time there even was the relational database but Larry was smart enough to understand that the relate most of the relational databases that existed at the time were sold by companies that also sold hardware. Mm-hmm. And so they were tied to those uh, pieces of hardware. And so he wanted to give people freedom to move from uh, hardware to hardware environment. And as a result, get some power over those vendors back. Right. He understood this dynamic. He, so he saw this hole in the market. And so what did he call it? A portable relational database Hmm. and ba-boom, he crushed everybody because he said, well, you wouldn't want a proprietary relational database, would you? You want a portable one. And so I guess my point in in, to get back to your question, the first thing is we we talked about the problem. When you get underneath that, um, there's an exercise you could think of. uh, We call it uh, getting clear about your Frodo's, your from twos. Mm-hmm. So if you take the way it is today in your category, so the, the paradigm, the pricing paradigm, the distribution paradigm, the customer experience paradigm, the whole thing, uh, the business model paradigm, this is the way it is. And you write, you detail that out in a list. And we, and we then recast that. We say, those are the froms. Five years from now, we want the world to go, oh yeah, that's how it used to be. Mm-hmm. And then we write out the corollary to how we want it to be. And we call those the twos. Mm-hmm. In the book, we call them the, the Frodo's for short, for fun. Mm-hmm. So here's what happens. When you get clear about your Frodo's, the problem starts to get clear. And then you think about, okay, well, how do we want to language the problem? Because it turns out languaging the problem is, is one of the keys here. And so you mm-hmm. begin to work on this thing called a point of view. Mm-hmm. And a point of view is, is a simple story that you tell that frames the problem and positions the solution. Mm-hmm. So one of my favorite examples of, of this is um, the creation of the TV dinner category. Mm-hmm. So this is, a, this is a great innovation and I, I just love it that the, the Swanson company uh, sold um, uh, you know, turkey and poultry and, and so forth. And they, a big season for them, of course, was Thanksgiving in America. And so they had this dilemma, which was, we want to be able to sell as many turkeys as possible, but 
that essentially means we have to over over buy and over over have too many so that we don't lose any sales, right? And so they said, well, what are we going to do with all this leftover turkey as opposed to throw it out? And they begin to work on a product idea that becomes the TV dinner. Mm. And so a very innovative way to think about it. But how are you going to sell and market leftover turkey dinner? Because that's what it is. (laughs) So, um, you know, in the 50s, frozen food was taking off. And it started in the, the 30s, if I'm not mistaken. We talk about Clarence Birdseye uh, in the book, right? The, the category designer of, uh, of uh, frozen food. And so they think, okay, well, what, we could freeze this stuff. And rather than just freezing turkey, they're going to slice it up and they're going to put it with gravy and they're going to put it with stuffing and some, a little dessert and this and that. And they're going to sell it in this thing. Well, at the same time, television is taking off. And so they position the product for the busy family to watch TV in, in, in front of, uh, uh, to watch, uh, to eat food in front of the TV. Right. And so they have headlines in their early ad stuff that say like how to catch the early, early show with an easy, easy dinner <laughs> and how to fix a scrumptious Turkey dinner in minutes. Mm. And so they're, they're framing the problem called if you want a scrumptious Turkey dinner that takes two days for Thanksgiving. Well now, but boom, and they tie it to this emerging thing, the TV. It's a time thing. It's a convenience thing. And, and, and it's in its own tray. It's self-contained. I can literally put it on my lap and watch it, the TV and have dinner. And, and busy uh, families can have a boom, right? And so that's how, that's how they frame the problem. And all of a sudden, they take a giant problem in their business. What do we do with these turkeys? They come up with a very innovative product idea. Mm-hmm. And they think, well... On one hand, the world could think of this as us selling leftover turkey. Mm. Instead, how to fix a scrumptious turkey dinner in minutes. Mm. And a whole new category is born because Mm. they condition the world to think about creating fast food at home in a whole new way that they, the world didn't. And this was a a problem the world didn't have. Nobody was saying, how do Mm. I fix a scrumptious TV dinner in minutes? Yeah, there's a problem the world didn't know they had until they found out that they had. And once the world sees the problem, they can't unsee it. And Swanson to this day is the category king in TV dinners. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Wow. Wow, Chris, um, this has been so much fun. This has been so much great learning for myself and I'm sure for our audience as well. So um, I want to, I want to close this interview, but before we do that, please tell our listeners, um, how to find you, how to get hold of you, find your book and all the other things that you're up to now that you're retired. Well, the big thing I'm up to that I'm uh, retired is I launched a podcast and I'm, I'm having a great time with it. You know, when the book came out, I got a lot of um, contact from people all around the world. You know, it's an amazing thing. You, uh, in this case, you know, four guys, me and three buddies uh, go to work on trying to synthesize um, much of our lives work together uh, to put these insights together in a way that uh, other people can benefit from them. I mean, we were used to doing category design, but sort of as you I'm sure understand and, and have probably been through in your own life, when you go to, teach others what you do is a whole other thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, um, 
and, and so I, I just get kept getting uh, contacted from people around the world who, who were reading the book and um, they had questions and, and many of them said, you know, we want more. And um, so legends and losers, my new podcast is, is my attempt at more. And we, we talk a lot about category design and marketing and entrepreneurship. Um, uh, but the thing we're really trying to do is, have an authentic, raw conversation about how to build a legendary business and a legendary life. Mm. When, when, when you think about most business kind of media, stories, books, whatever we, concern, we consume, they're about the business. They're not very much about the people. So we try to incorporate those two things because most of us want to build a legendary business because we want a legendary life and the two things are inextricably linked. Mm -hmm. And yet very rarely do people have authentic dialogue about that. So that's a big part of what we're up to with legends and losers. And the other part as per the name is um, we all learn more from our losses than our wins. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, when you hear the big interview with Steph Curry uh, from the, from the, the warriors after he wins the basketball MVP and they ask him about his life and his career and all that stuff, you know, the impression you can get is that, well, you know, he's this magical creature that got this extra organ next to his liver called awesome at basketball. And I don't have that. And I love watching him, but like, this has got zero relevance to me. Right. Yeah. And, and so I guess my point is that, um, can we have an authentic dialogue around how to build a legendary life and legendary business and talk about how the losses open us up to uh, actually learning what we need to learn and ultimately hopefully becoming legendary in our lives and in our businesses. And so uh, that's what legends and losers is about. And then of course, category design is a big part of it because we talk a lot about entrepreneurship and marketing in those contexts. And so um, that's the big thing I'm doing in my retirement, other than trying to spend a lot of time with my family and um, I'm a surfer and uh, we try to keep active and enjoy this uh, beautiful part of the world that we get to live in. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, well, Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Uh, I appreciate it very much. This was a lot of fun and a lot of great learning as well. So thank you. Honors all mine, Manny. Speak to you soon. As you know, I have personally read over 1,500 business and self-help books. And as a result of that, one of the most common questions I get is, Manny, what books do you recommend? To which I always respond with this question. What specific area do you need help with? Because I can't really give you any book recommendations unless I know what you're looking for. So after having done this hundreds of times, I decided to create lists of my top 10 books in all the different areas of business and personal development. You can get all these lists for free at 10books.org. That's 10books.org. At 10books.org, you can get the following list for free. 10 best productivity books, 10 best mental toughness books, 10 best biographies for ambitious people, 10 best entrepreneurship books, 10 best marketing books, 10 best sales books, 10 best leadership books, 10 best books for online entrepreneurs, 10 best success mindset books, 10 best self-help books, 10 best social skills books. So just head on over to 10books.org and grab your list of top 10 books for free.